0: Hey, and welcome to the 12 Stone Church Podcast. Thank you so much for taking time to be a part of today's message. We hope it inspires you, encourages you, and deepens your faith in Jesus. Enjoy the message.
1: I know your campus pastors and your pastors already talked about this, but Christmas Eve is a incredibly strategic moment. Grab your invitations, if you don't mind, here across Kansas. Put them above your head. Hold them up. I want to see that you have them in your hand. This is one of the most important tools in the next four weeks in our lives as a church because, listen, there are people that don't know the hope of Christmas. They know the songs. They got the crazy, ugly Christmas sweaters, and they don't know the real beauty and hope behind it. So I want to pray for you. And this is not like a transition prayer. You know how like, let's pray and something happens behind me. (laughs) This is a prayer that I'm asking the spirit of God to put a face of a person in your mind. a Friend, a coworker, a neighbor, a family member that you're going to invite to Christmas. And what if God was going to use that invitation to change not just their year, but their eternity? So just bow your heads with me. So Jesus, I pray you go before us in this season. And for every man, every woman, every student, God, that's sitting here, would you put the name and a face of somebody that you want, that you've put them in connection with, in relationship with, someone that's near to them but, but maybe far from you, and would they invite them to Christmas? Would you give them favor in the invitation? And would people show up to Christmas Eve expecting nostalgia and Christmas songs, and would they leave knowing their Savior? In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Here across the campuses, look at the person next to you. Just tell them, say, Merry Christmas. Just tell them, Merry Christmas. Now, now listen, now that Thanksgiving's over, now that college football's officially over, no more doesn't exist anymore. Now that that's done, there's no more games the rest of the whole season. Now that that's done, we're now officially in Christmas, and that's all that we have to talk about or think about and don't have to cry this morning, okay? No big deal. It's Christmas time. And and this season preaches, right? This season, we're going to step into a three week conversation culminating in the fourth week, which is Christmas Eve, which by the way, Christmas Eve is going to be over the top. We've not done Christmas Eve like this in a long time. You're going to want to be here and bring somebody. But over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about this thought of what would it look like to live with a Christmas perspective? That we we, would see the world through a perspective of Christmas. And I, I, I admittedly, I love Christmas. Like I love the music. You're going to make fun of me but like there's days where like I have a bad day in June and I'm driving home, you know what I do? I'll throw on like a Bing Crosby Christmas song and like 30 seconds in I'm like, "You know what? Wasn't that bad of a day. I'm pretty happy now." Like I love I love Christmas. I love the traditions, the vibe, the family time, I love me some presents. Like it's all good. But there's something we seldom talk about in this Christmas season, that that Christmas brings a perspective, a way of seeing everything in our world, really a worldview. There's a worldview that Christmas brings, and and, and the way that we see the world through this filter of Christmas speaks into every event, personal and global. And over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack this idea that, that what if the story of Christmas, God wants to speak into things like, maybe week three, like how, how does Christmas give us a perspective on the weight of providing in our finances? And what does it mean to provide it? Maybe what if week two, we, we, we said, how would the Christmas perspective speak into how we do relationships in the season, even dysfunctional ones? What if Christmas was a part of that? And, and today we're going to take a, a look at the Christmas perspective and how it can shape even current events. But I want to lay out sort of a, a way of seeing what we're going to be talking about the next three weeks. That that all of us have a perspective, whether you know it or not. There's there's glasses that we see the world through, whether you like it or not. We all have it, but there's a way that you can your, your perspective can actually filter the truth of Christmas through the the events around us in the world, and that you actually see the world before you see the manger. That you 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 look at Christmas and the current events that are happening either personally or globally, they actually go and put the manger up. The the things that are happening actually shape our perspective of Christmas. But what if this year God wanted to help reorder that, that 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 our perspective, go ahead and do the next one, guys, all three at the same time. Our perspective would allow us to have the truth of Christmas actually give perspective to how we see the world. That if what happened at Christmas is true, shouldn't that shape everything else? What if instead of current events shaping how we see Christ in Christmas, what if Christ in Christmas helped shape how we see current events? In fact, it, it played out last night. Wasn't in my notes until last night, but uh, I had an hour with my three real sad kids, and I had to help shape their perspective. Because to them, last night, go back, last night the world fell apart. And and it sort of did. Uh, And and I had three kids who were on the verge of tears, and I had an hour conversation going, it's okay. And they're going, it wasn't a catch. And I'm like, I agree, it wasn't a catch, right? Anyway, and and they were like, and and the refs were, they were against this man, and, and we we always, we always just, when we play Alabama. We always just play not to lose instead of play to win. I'm like, you guys are right, Kirby. We got to play to win, not just. And so, and so I'm sitting there going, literally, look around. Georgia lost. Yes. God blessed us with a roof over our head. Are you cold? No. Are you hungry? No. Do your parents love you? Yes. It's going to be okay. And I spent an hour doing this, and I practiced on my kids. Hopefully it works better with y'all today. So. It started there, but but let's not pretend like the first Christmas, God had all these prophecies from years ago, like Micah five. There's a prophecy saying that, listen, Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Then another prophecy in Isaiah seven saying that he will be born. Jesus of a, of a virgin Isaiah nine prophesies that Jesus will come as a baby and all these prophecies play out. But the problem is there were current events happening at Christmas. The first one. Like, they had a a world that was messed up back then. They were occupied by the Roman government. And they were a tyrannical and harsh government. And God's people, the Israelites, were like, it's not going great. And then you got high taxes. And life's just not pretty. They had a little bit of freedom to practice their religion, but not fully. And they're looking at their world. And listen, thousands of people missed the coming of Christ at Christmas. Because they saw it through their world and their current events. They didn't see Christmas and they see their world through the reality of Christmas. All the prophecies pointing to it and they still missed it. And I want us to not miss the hope of Christmas this year. Because there are current events personally in your home. And there are current events on the world stage. That are so complex and so weighty that if we're not careful, we will begin to see the hope of Christmas actually through current events, not through Christ first. And here's what's interesting. As I start reading the Christmas story in in Matthew, I always skip to verse 18 because that's where it gets good. And it starts like, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married, but before they came together, she was pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Then you got the shepherds, you got the angels, you got the manger, you got the nativity. I'm like, yay, Christmas. But Matthew starts pretty different. Like, If we want to start where the Christmas story actually starts, we have to start further back. And here's what's something you, you may have never seen The Christmas story actually speaks directly to the largest thing happening in the headlines and the news today, and that's what's happening in the Middle East right now. What's happening in Israel right now. And today, as it just got quiet, I'm going to talk directly to the current events of what's happening in Israel I need you to hear this. I'm not a current event chaser. Like when something happens in the news or in society, I don't just like reflexively go, we're going to talk about that on Sunday. But sometimes it's so big and so directly connected to scripture, I have to talk about it. And so the reality is before I jump in, I need you to see something. Part of the calling God's given me as a pastor is that I have to have One foot in the the unchanging text of Scripture, while simultaneously having one foot in the ever-changing context of our world. And Scripture never changes, but the world is ever changing. And I have to sort of straddle this reality of text and context. Very tricky. Secondly, I'm a pastor, not a foreign policy maker or politician. Thirdly, I'm not going to talk policy. I'm talking biblical worldview. And I need our church to be able to see the current events that are happening, not through the lens of current events first, but through Christ first. Because otherwise, we're going to miss what's really happening and get pulled down into things that are not on God's agenda. And my prayer this week, I've spent more hours praying for you, church, this week than I've in a long time. Because we are so at risk of getting pulled down into something and seeing Christ through current events versus seeing current events through Christ first. And here's the principle. This whole conversation about Israel is not primarily about foreign policy. It's primarily about prophecy, theology, and a spiritual war. And there are things happening behind the scenes that we will not see if we don't slow down and understand where this started, why it's happening, and what will happen in the future. And so that's the conversation I want to have. And I enter today's conversation with fear and trembling before Almighty God. Because I so desperately want to bring you the truth of Scripture, devoid of my opinion, devoid of cultural thoughts. I want to bring the truth of Scripture. And I'm going to be honest, when I preach most weeks, I have just like this free confidence that like when I'm preaching John 3, 16, I'm like, for God, so love the, I feel like, like Braveheart, man. Like when I, when I preach that, like, that's me. I'm like, bring it. What you got? John 3, shit. Today, like I'm dealing with like prophecies that people have been trying to like untangle for thousands of years and all this. And I feel more like this today than Braveheart. I feel like trying to connect all these dots and like, man, this is how it plays out. And so I, I have like this not an insecurity, but like a holy reverence for the topic and the conversation. And I, 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 I'm choosing to say this. Listen, I, I've not talked about this yet because I didn't have the mind of God yet. And you don't need my mind. You need his. But over the course of the last week, I've spent hours reading and praying and scripture and listening to pastors I respect. Pastor Chris Hodges, Gary Bosch, Josh Howerton, many others. I've, I've read Really, really smart things from people who've been dead for a very, very long time, and they have words to be said. By the way, if you don't read dead people, you're missing out, man. Like the ones that are with Jesus right now, and their words remain, like there's something beautiful about a person who wrote the words and lived the life, and now we know where they are. And I've sat inside of so much, and here's what I've discovered. There's so much more going on today than meets the eye or than makes the news. And I need you to understand what's happening so we know how to live and what to expect. And I'm asking you. Thank you. I'm asking you. Don't get pulled down into the lesser conversations. There's a narrative that is so beautiful, massive, and hopeful. If you could see there is hope amidst tragedy. There is joy to be found amidst sadness. But I need to start where it started so I can start where scripture starts. So in in case you don't know what's going on and why I'm talking Israel. On Saturday, October 7th of this year, there were 1,500 Sunni Muslims that were a part of a terrorist organization called Hamas. They broke through the border of Israel and they started murdering innocent people, men, women, children, even infants. Some 1,300 people were murdered. The largest single day of death for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And I... I can say this with clarity that that group Hamas is a nationally recognized, globally recognized terrorist group. Their actual charter says in writing published, their charter is to exterminate all Jewish people in the world. So this is not my opinion. This is everyone agrees. Hamas, very bad. Terrorist people. This moment happens and you see it play out and, and church, we don't know. We don't have, I don't have a file to put that in. It was horrific, heartbreaking, terrifying, and depending on your wiring, your emotion either went like angry or sad or fearful, and as that day played out, we didn't know where to put it. I don't know where to file that event and those events and the events that are continuing, and yet here's what's crazy. the current events we're seeing now are not new. They're a continuation of a 4,000-year-old conflict. And you're not going to believe me, but the Christmas story actually speaks to it. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 1.1. And I want to read how the Christmas story starts, because it doesn't start with Gold and incense or frankincense and myrrh doesn't start with angels and, and mangers. It doesn't start with Mary and Joseph and just a little cute pregnant belly and this little baby next to donkeys. And we have nativities that look like it would smell good back then. It did not. It doesn't start with all that. Here's how the Christmas story actually starts. It says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Somebody say Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and all his brothers from there. And then it continues on for 42 more generations until we get to verse 17. And it says, Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham. Somebody say Abraham. Abraham. From Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from exile to the Messiah. You see, a bug just flew out of that Bible. Did you see that? That was creepy. It's on my sweater right now. I hate bugs. Whatever's happening, Lord, speak. Your servant's listening. Let's bring her back in. So Christmas story starts with Abraham. Why? Because this is where God's people start. And for thousands of years, there were prophecies saying the Messiah is coming, but it starts all the way back with Abraham. And in order to understand what's happening today, you have to understand what happened 4,000 years ago. And I did a whole teaching on this passage of scripture on February 6th, 2022. 2022. Go back and watch the whole thing. I don't have time to do all of it, but I need to give us enough of it so we understand. So in Genesis 15, God sees this man named Abram, who he would later change his name to Abraham, which is what you see in the genealogy of Jesus. And God says to Abraham, leave your family and come to this land. And when he goes to this land, God credits his faith changes his name, and he makes a covenant with Abraham. And this covenant is known now as the uh, Abrahamic covenant. And, and and in a written culture, we do contracts. Like when you buy a house, you sign a contract saying, I will pay for the house, otherwise they will take your house. That's a contract. But in a non-written culture, a covenant is a visual representation. and And the motto for a contract is, I'll do what I should do as long as you do what you should do. That's a contract. But this covenant with God, the motto was to Abraham and all his descendants. The motto is this. I will be what I should be to you, even if you are not what you're supposed to be towards me. And if you sat inside of the covenant inside of Genesis 15, the beauty and richness of what happened See, a covenant back then, what you would do is part of the covenant is you would, you would uh, murder an animal and lay it out, and you'd walk between the dead animal, and you would state the covenant that if I break this covenant, may I be like these, this dead animal on the ground. Like It's like I swear that I swear that I promise that I swear I won't break the covenant. And when it came time for that moment to happen, God put Abraham to sleep, and God walked both sides of the covenant, saying, Abraham, you don't have the ability to keep your end of the deal. So I am, I am going to be both the one who makes the conditions and holds the conditions of the covenant. And he makes a promise saying, Abraham and all your descendants, this is an unconditional covenant. God will make and meet the demands of this covenant. And he promises Abraham And there are three parts to this covenant. I know I've got to do, I've got to go back and take us to school before I can take us to church. But here's the covenant. He promised three things, a land, a lineage, and a Lord. This was a part of the promise he made to Abraham. He promised Abraham a land. That land was the promised land in the Middle East, in Israel right now. And then God promised Abraham a lineage, although Abraham was old. Beyond the age, you're supposed to be able to have kids. God said, you're going to eventually have a kid. And from that lineage, a great nation will come. And then third, I promise you a Lord. From your lineage, the Messiah will be raised up in your family tree. This is why Matthew 1 starts with the lineage. Because it goes all the way back to the covenant. The promise God made saying, the Messiah will come from you, Abraham. The problem is. At that moment of covenant between God and Abraham, a spiritual war broke out that we could not see with our physical eyes. Because whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. Whatever God begins, Satan opposes. Whatever God's agenda is, Satan says, yeah, the opposite. And in that moment, Satan began to oppose and counterfeit those exact same three things. Land, lineage, and Lord. He wanted to take the land God promised Abraham. He wanted to destroy the lineage that God promised Abraham. And he wanted to set up an opposing Lord from the Messiah that he promised would come from Abraham. And that is what Satan wants to do always, by the way. Whatever God establishes or creates, Satan wants to oppose and Satan wants to counterfeit. And this took all of one chapter of Scripture to see the counterfeit. Genesis 15, beautiful moment. I promise you a son, and from that son, a lineage, and there will be a land, and from the lineage will be a Lord. And then, chapter 16, and Abraham and Sarah are like, It's been a while since the kid promised. Not getting any younger, Abraham. And Sarah goes, Hey, husband of mine, maybe God has a different way of doing this than we thought. I know He promised we'll have a son, and, but what if He did it? He wants to do it differently this time. And he's like, Abraham, I need to ask you a favor. Would you sleep with my maidservant? Abraham's a dude, and he's like, let me think. Yep. Well done, Abraham. Guys, am I right? So Abraham sleeps with Sarah's servant named Hagar, who's an Egyptian woman. And they get pregnant. And they have a son, and they name that son Ishmael. In that moment, it's like this might be how God delivers on his promise that Sarah got pregnant. We have us or not. Hagar got pregnant. We have a son. We name him Ishmael. But the problem is that was not the promise God made. They didn't trust that God would do the thing he said he would do in the way he said it would do it. They took it into their own hands. And now here's what God says in Genesis 16, 12 about their son Ishmael. He, Ishmael, will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. This is not just a back then. This is a continuation. The genealogy, him and all his descendants would be at odds with whoever his brother was going to be. Doesn't even have a brother yet, but whoever his brother was going to be, you're going to be in conflict until the end of time prophesied 4,000 years ago. Then eventually God does what he said he's going to do. And Abraham and Sarah, they have the promised son and they name him Isaac. And what we just read in Matthew one, the genealogy of Jesus, Abraham had a son named Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, and so on and so forth. And each of those sons had 12 sons. Isaac, 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. Ishmael had 12 sons, and the genealogy is still alive today. And here's the problem. God had, there's one God who made one covenant with one man, Abraham. The plan was that Abraham would have one son, and from that Jesus. But Satan always counterfeits what God establishes. And so instead, it was one man, one covenant, one God with two wives who each had a son of their own. and Each son had 12 sons, and today we sit inside of a struggle that originated from that moment. And thousands of years later, through the lineage of Isaac, read Matthew 1 all the way to verse 18 is how we get to Christmas. Thousands of years later, the first Christmas, Jesus shows up as the Messiah. And then 600 years, 700 years later, after the, the birth of Christ, another person is born. And that person's name is Muhammad Muhammad. Muhammad is a descendant of Ishmael and I'm telling you all this to say God sees all this stuff none of this stuff is beyond his sight and we have to understand where this comes from so we can know how we approach it and live in inside of it and Galatians 1: 8 Paul actually gives this warning six hundred years before Muhammad's born verse eight but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you. Let them be under God's curse. Don't follow that gospel. What happens is Muhammad is born all those years later and he goes into a cave and he, what he calls an angel, shows up and preaches a gospel that is not the one preached after the resurrection of Christ. He comes out and says, This is the new gospel. And the Jews and the Christians go, No, it's not. And that what they believed is Islam believes that the Bible's wrong. God actually chose. Hagar, not Sarah. God chose Ishmael, not Isaac. And therefore, Islam says that the land is theirs, the lineage is theirs, and the Lord will be theirs. All of that is the backdrop to what's happening because for nearly 2,000 years, there's been war between the descendants of Isaac which are the Jewish folks and the defendants are the descendants of Ishmael which come out in groups like Hamas and of course the fighting that happens is not like where did this come from this is where it comes from because listen we can get so caught up in world news and current events that we don't see the world and current events through the filter of Christ and Christmas we see Christ through the filter of world events and I don't do talks like this very often because it's always quiet like this. <laughs> and it's a lot to take in. But the reality is what happened this fall in Israel is not new or surprising or shocking. It's terrifying and saddening and heartbreaking, but it's been Decided years ago that this is how it's all going to play out for thousands of years. And what I need you to see is that there's something happening behind the natural, physical world and the natural, physical borders of nations, that there is something happening in the supernatural. And Ephesians 6 is the verse that explains everything we see today. Ephesians six twelve. for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not people. But our struggle is against the rulers and the authorities and against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There is a battle going on in the spiritual world that pulls strings in the physical one. And if you don't understand why this started, why it's happening and where the real war is, we get sucked down and pulled down into political and foreign uh, policy and politics and physical problems when the reality is this is a spiritual battle that started 4,000 years ago. And you don't win spiritual battles with physical stuff. You win spiritual battles with spiritual stuff. And the war that we see play out on the news feels like it's the real war. When in reality, the real war, it's not really, truly even about the land. It's about who is Lord. See, when they attack, they're not just trying to take square footage. They're trying to counterfeit who the Lord really is. And it's why in nearly every generation of world history, think back, there's at least one superpower that rises up and tries to exterminate the Jewish people. The Egyptians and the Philistines. The Babylonians, the Persians, then the Romans, then the Nazis in World War II, and now terrorist groups like Hamas. Why do the same things keep happening? Because the same spirits are still at war and still at work. That's why. And I tell you all this because the Bible gives us a complete narrative that actually makes sense of what's happening in our world. And if you don't know why you don't know how to act, you don't know why, you don't know what to see coming. And so I'm going to now turn and I want to go real practical. So that's crazy enough. That's the foundation for the teaching. I don't have another 30 minutes. Relax. But I want to take this practical. I want to talk to two groups because the questions I get sort of fall into two groups. And I want to speak directly to it. The first group asked the question, is this the end times? That's an honest question. By the way, it's a question that's been asked since the apostles, like Acts. They were like, is this it? Is this happening? And I actually went back and started reading church fathers that were alive during the Revolutionary War. Think about from their perspective, Britain's hitting our shores with boats and firepower. We've never seen the likes of which. And you're going, surely this is the end. Come back, Jesus. He didn't. Then World War I, the whole world is at war. This feels like stuff at the end of the book. Am I right? Then World War II, the Jews are being attacked. This has got to be it. It's been 80 some years now. Didn't return. Why 2K? I was in my dad's basement a couple years ago and I found canned food with the date of the year 2000 on it. Anyone, Be honest, if you're old enough, anyone supply up? The computers are taking over. We're all going down. Jesus is coming back. Listen, for, for, for years, we've been sort of trying to figure out, is this, is this the time? I'm going to talk about that. But there's a, there's a second group, and this is where I think more of us live, whether you can, can admit you're here, or if you're honest, you can sort of feel it in your soul. The first group's going, is, is this the end times? We're going to talk. The second group is, is sort of asking the question, is there any reason for hope right now in the midst of our current events? Like I got enough junk in my own life. I got enough pressure in my own life. And then you start to see the headlines come in and you're like, is there even any reason for hope? See, I think we have an epidemic of confusion that produces hopelessness. And I've talked to enough. I talked to more dudes in the church, but I've talked to enough guys in the church that when they get honest, they go, dude, I just I can't hear another thing that's heavy. And my concern is there are guys that are like self-medicating to get through another day or there's people that are self-entertaining to distract yourself to get through another day or we're we're going numb and disconnecting to protect ourselves from like another thing. And there's this weight of hopelessness. So I want to speak to that as well. But I want to start with the first thing first. Is this the end times that the Bible prophesied about? We'll see you next week. It's a great cliffhanger, isn't it? I'm just kidding. That's what they do on TV shows. I figured it might work. Here's the thing. We have to allow the prophecy of Scripture to inform the current events, not the current events to inform the prophecy of Scripture. So we don't read in our stuff that's going on into Scripture. We allow Scripture to read into the current events that are going on. Now, there are things playing out in our world that can start to check some boxes. The Problem is, those boxes have been checked before Revolutionary War, World War One, World War Two, 2 okay? what's going on in the news right now? So how do you how do you how do you know? You see, Jesus, 50, over 50 times, Jesus says, be alert and be ready. And here's what you have to know first. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to live with the knowledge that Jesus is coming again. The prophecies that preceded Christmas Born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, coming as a baby. Those boxes were checked at Christmas. There are now a bunch more, hundreds of more prophecies about the end times. The gist of it needs to be this He is coming. The book of Ezekiel, the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, you could spend your rest of your life in those books, but here's what you need to know about them, that Jesus will arrive in glory, that Jesus will judge sin, that Jesus will win the war, that Jesus will eradicate evil, Jesus will wipe away every tear, and Jesus will make all things new again and restore this place back to what God's original design was before sin corrupted and messed it up. That's the good news of the gospel, and we believe it. And what Jesus will do is he will complete the covenant he started in Genesis 15, that Jesus will claim the land and not just the promised land, the entire earth. He will fulfill the lineage, and he will be proven as Lord of all creation. Those are the three things that he promised. He will complete them. And the question is, just like the disciples asked in Matthew 24. I love that the disciples were on the scene because they asked the questions I'd ask. Right? Here's what they said. Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Great question, disciples. You asked some dumb ones too, but that's a good one. And Jesus begins to walk through this scripture. I'm going to walk through in a second. But he ends it by saying this in verse 36. But about the day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven And a lot of translations actually say this, nor the son, Jesus, only the father. I'm not going to try to explain how the Trinity works and God knows something Jesus doesn't. But if Jesus might not know, I don't know. Can I give you a caution? Anybody who tells you, I know when Jesus is coming back, I would be weary. Problem is, books have been written about it. People have sold everything they own and climbed up to the top of mountains in the 80s. Man, y'all were built different in the 80s. And they woke up the next morning and like, well, we don't own anything anymore. What do we do now? Let, let Let me say it this way. Here's a couple thoughts about, is this the end? One, no one knows the exact time of the return of Christ. But if you follow Jesus, we know he will return. Second, we are closer to the return of Christ now than we've ever been before. Ever, 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 ever. And guess what? it will be more true tomorrow than it is today. Third, people have been wrong before. The apostles, the different wars, the different global events. Fourth, no one knows the hour, but Jesus does help us recognize the season. Let me, let me put it in this picture. It's sort of like a pregnant woman. You get pregnant and you know a baby is going to come out eventually. Ask your parents. So baby's going to come. And and I don't know the exact... They give you a due date, but as my wife discovered on our first kid, two weeks past the due date, that's not an accurate date. It's a sort of guess. But as her stomach begins to get bigger and contractions start to start, you sort of know we're in the season. Might not be today, but we're getting closer, right? Like, you know that's coming. No one knows the hour, but we can begin to recognize the season. And Jesus begins to speak to the season And I want to use Jesus's conversation in verses 4 to 13 to also talk to the second group. Because what Jesus is going to do when he comes back is he's going to take the land, he's going to fulfill the lineage, and be proven as Lord. That's his role. So the second group, is there hope for today? How do we live amidst the global current events? What do we do? I want to give us three words that I'll unpack. Jesus's job, land, lineage, Lord. Our job? holy, hungry, hopeful. That's our role. And I want you to see how it plays out in this conversation. So here's the first thought that if Jesus is coming back again and if we might be in the season when he will, here's what we should do. We should live holy knowing that you will face Jesus. When he comes back, whether it's in our lifetime or the next, when he comes back, Or when you pass away, you will face Jesus. Live holy as he is holy, like you know this. Like, don't pretend. Like, if company's coming over to my house, I have no excuse to not be showered up and not smelly. Like, you know he's coming. Don't be stinky. Live holy as knowing you will face Jesus. And here's some of the things Jesus says in Matthew 24 about the season of when he might return. So he says this, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. In the time leading up to Jesus's return, many people will claim I'm the real Messiah. Why? They want to counterfeit who the Lord is. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. If you're a follower of Jesus, we know wars are coming. They're already here. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of the birth pains. Remember the illustration of pregnancy. You start to feel some contractions. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me, Jesus. Church, in America, we don't want to read that verse. I don't like it. But if we're getting to the end, we'll be hated just for our love of Jesus. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. People taking scripture, twisting, counterfeiting. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. The zeal we had for Christ will begin to grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Can I tell you, live holy knowing you will face Jesus. We get caught up in trying to pick the hour and we go lax and go cold on trying to set our disposition of holiness. Don't spend your time picking the hour. Spend your your time living holy as he is holy, being more like Jesus every day. Not getting caught up in sin, because listen, if I told you that Jesus was coming back tomorrow and you start to think, man, I need to start living more selfless, or I need to tell my kids I love them more, or I need to clean up this sin in my life, you should do it now. Don't wait till we guess a date or you hear a trumpet. Do it now. Secondly, live hungry for lost people, knowing that they will face Jesus. Not just you, not just me. But everybody will face Jesus in the end. Live hungry for lost people like you know this. Here's how Jesus finishes this section in verse 14. And this is how he says the big sign of him coming. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Jesus doesn't return until the gospel reaches the corners of the earth. And people have a chance to hear. And the reality of this is, if I told you that Jesus was returning tomorrow, who would you go? I need to share my faith with this person. See, when you know it's coming to the end, you get a little more bold, don't you? It's why I think Americans love missionary work. Because we go on a seven-day trip, and I don't have to see him again, and I get bold. I'm going to teach you. I'm going to tell you about the gospel, and I don't care if you hate me, because I'm going back to Starbucks tomorrow, and you don't have to see you again. The problem is I got to see people after I have the conversation. Can to be honest? That's, I, I feel that way. But in light, the prophecies pointing that Jesus will return. I got to get hungry for lost people. Listen, if I told you Jesus was coming back on December 26th, who do you wish you would have invited on December 24th? See, this isn't just cutesy games to us. Eternity's on the line. There are people that are close to you, but far from God. That they will face Jesus in the end. Make your invites to Christmas Eve because it's going to be awesome, it's going to be fun. I'm just preaching the gospel, it's telling the good news of Christmas. There's a Savior that would take your sin. See, why is Jesus waiting to return? Second Peter says it so beautifully. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Meaning this. From heaven to here, time didn't work the same. I'm not going to go in and do math and say, well, let's do the math on that. Well, if a thousand years is a day, and that means technically God, I don't know. That's back to the first picture of red yarn everywhere. I don't know. Time is different. But the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, land, lineage, Lord, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why is Jesus not back yet? because he's waiting for you. If you don't know Jesus yet, he's waiting for your neighbor, your family member, your friend who doesn't know Jesus yet. He doesn't want to come back until people have a shot at knowing him. He's not slow. He's patient. Can I tell you what's really cool? I got a chance to talk to one of my pastor friends, and he has someone from his church that that is living in Israel right now, was on the ground when everything happened, and Hamas came in and just It's as horrific as you can imagine. But here's what the Christian missionary said. He said, you got to get your mind in this. There's an evangelistic revival happening in Palestine and the Middle East right now. You'll never hear about it in the news. It's called Christophanies. People are going to sleep and having dreams about Jesus. Like Muslim people, descendants of Ishmael at odds with Isaac and the lineage and the land and the Lord and they go to sleep and Jesus meets them in a dream and they wake up and go Jesus is Lord like I can't I can't fake this stuff there's an underground church in Palestine that would be killed if they were discovered that is starting to flourish Muslim churches are emptying in the streets and wars happening in and Jesus is advancing the gospel in the place that you could never imagine. Why? He's not slow. He's patient. And this is going to tick people off. And that's what I'm going to say it. I don't pick a side in this battle. I pick a savior in this battle. And the heart of God breaks for Hamas like it breaks for the Jews. And his heart breaks. For the Palestinians, and the Israelites, and the Egyptians, and the Syrians, and the Americans, he he wants to know you. Church, we lost our hunger for the lost, and we get sucked down into little wars, taking sides, and we care more about foreign policy, salvation. Not slow in keeping his promise; he's patient, not wanting a Palestinian or a Jew or a Christian to perish, but that they would know Christ. And lastly, goodness gracious, I'm over time. Lastly, live hopeful, knowing that Jesus is coming again. He is returning, and if it's true that Jesus doesn't know the day or the time. I've heard old preachers say this. A friend of mine say it recently. It's, it's like if I could just get a picture in my mind to understand the heart of Jesus, it's this. Like what if Jesus wakes up? There's no such thing as waking up in heaven, but just go with it. The morning happens and Jesus is like, Dad, is today the day I get to get my bride? Can I, can I go down and get... It's us, by the way. Dudes, you don't like it, but it's beautiful when you understand the scripture and theology behind it. That the church is his bride. Think about you. If you're the husband, think about you standing in the front of the church and the door's opening, your bride coming. like, it's today. Let's go. It's my bride. I just picture Jesus like, Dad, it's today. Can I go get the bride? Can I go get him? God's like, not yet. Patient. Patient. I want more to know. I want more to follow. But church, we have to begin to live in the hope of the Christmas perspective that he is coming again. The God that made all the promises and prophecies leading to Jesus, the boxes have been checked. The prophecies in Isaiah about his death and resurrection, checkity check, check, check. And there's hundreds of more prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. But listen, the hope I have is, that, is this, that God has a plan. He's just not done yet. And the world will be broken, sad, and sin will play out. And Satan will twist and manipulate and counterfeit the things of God. He'll try to get us to care about land more than Lord. But ultimately, those who stand firm in the end will be saved. So live holy. Live hungry. Live hopeful. Because my hope is not tied up circumstances. Wars or no wars. Headlines or no headlines. I trust the one who holds it all together. Let me pray for us. So Jesus, that was a lot. Holy Spirit, that was a lot. Would you, would you help translate and explain and deepen this thought in the hearts of people? God, for those who don't know you yet, would this be a drawing thought that what if there is a God who sent Jesus once and Jesus is coming back again? What if that's true? Woo them to yourself. For people that follow Jesus already, God, would you take us to deeper places of trust, understanding, and hope amidst a world that is dark and seemingly hopeless that you have a plan and it's just not done yet. And God, for all of us, would you burden our hearts with a hunger for the lost? God, I just pray in advance, Lord, would Christmas Eve, would Christmas Eve be a harvest of people far from you? Would there be hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of people that show up thinking it's Christmas trees and fun and would they leave knowing their Savior? And would you use us as you make us hungry for them, hungry that they would know you? Would you use us as we invite and bring people with us that we get to see what the gospel does firsthand? Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you again for spending time with us today. A special thanks to those of you who generously give through 12 Stone. It is because of you that this ministry is possible. And if you want to learn more about 12 stone, make sure you follow us on social at 12 stone church and check out a location or a watch party near you. And if you enjoyed the podcast, you could subscribe, share it with your friends, hit the share button, or even take a screenshot and throw it in your social stories and make sure to tag 12 stone church. Let it be a blessing to somebody else. Thank you again. And we'll catch you on the next one.